Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwick. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwick and a Dungeon Master myself. And today we're here to talk to you about siege weapons. Nathan, what is a siege weapon? It's a weapon that you siege with. And what's a siege? It's a thing that people stand outside a place very angrily and try to siege. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I'm going to just go right into the Dungeon Master's Guide then section on siege equipment. Siege weapons are designed to assail castles and other walled fortifications. They see much use in campaigns that feature war. Most siege weapons don't move around a battlefield on their own. They require creatures to move them as well as load, aim, and fire them. So this is the big weapons when you are trying to attack a castle. A normal weapon is just not going to do it. So historically speaking, all kinds of enormous powerful weapons have just been created over time in order to just get through the damn walls one way or another or to defend the walls against those trying to attack you. So this is yet another topic that I am super interested in. However, Though I am going to do the usual go through all the versions that are, you know, canonically listed. I'm going to just say flat out at the top here. I hate, really angrily dislike the listed siege equipment because it's just insufficient and boring in my eyes. Like historical siege equipment is really neat, but the way it is used here, I feel is insufficient. So I'm just going to go through all of the official written material, talk about what is good about it, and then I'm probably just going to go off a rant about how it should be done. So we're going to start off with the classic ballista. So this is just the giant crossbow that will lob like a javelin or spear for all intents and purposes, enormous distances to just, well, Fire hit people from very far away, ideally. It is a large object with an AC of 15 and 50 five zero hit points. Uh, as an so all objects are immune to poison and psychic damage. So just assume that to be true for all of these, because it is, and I'm not just gonna waste time reading it on all of them. A ballista is a massive crossbow that fires heavy bolts. Before it can be fired, it must be loaded and aimed. It takes one action to load the weapon, one action to aim it, and one action to fire it. And that is a series of events that repeats throughout most of these weapons, is that it does take multiple actions to actually just use the damn things. Uh, I will actually mention what the damage and range and stuff is in just a moment, but I do want to just talk about some general siege weapon stuff first here. The fact that it does take multiple actions is one of the very, very big limitations on siege weapons. But on the other hand, the argument could be made that the intent of a siege weapon is for commoners to have some way to actually put, you know, a decent amount of damage out, even though they themselves may not actually have skill or whatever to do it. Because for all siege weapons, proficiency doesn't matter. So now, 
I'm going to say here for the Ballista Bolt, it is a ranged weapon attack. It is a flat plus six to hit. So d20 plus six. Proficiency doesn't matter. Dexterity doesn't matter. It is always just a plus six, regardless of your level, regardless of your skill. It's just d20 plus six. You probably see where I'm going with my feelings on that matter. Anyway, uh, Ballista Bolt also has a range of 120 slash 480. So you can fire it within 120 feet or up to 480, but with disadvantage. Uh, It is aimed at one target that on a hit does 3d10 piercing damage. So that sounds like a decent amount, and it honestly is. But you don't add any dexterity modifier. There is no damage that gets added. It is just a flat 3d10, and that is the ballista. So now we move on to the cannon. Also a large object, 19 AC, 75 hit points. A cannon uses gunpowder to propel heavy balls of cast iron through the air at destructive speeds. In a campaign without gunpowder, a cannon might be an arcane device built by clever gnomes or wizardly engineers. A cannon is usually supported in a wooden frame with wheels. Before it can be fired, the cannon must be loaded and aimed. It takes one action to load the weapon, one action to aim it, and one action to fire it. Then the cannonball also will be a plus six, so d20 plus six. Range, though, 600 slash 2400. So its normal range is the long range of a long bow, and the long range, 2400 feet. That is massive range. And then the damage on that is a flat 8d10 bludgeoning damage so again respectable amount of damage but no plus that gets added to it i do have to say like the it taking three actions to do the whole thing Mm -hmm. really makes sense because you need multiple people on the thing to do the thing yeah like these are tasks that it is not fast to do if anything this like for the sake of game makes it easier than actuality and actually like in a real you know, medieval battle to actually wind up to just cock back a ballista would easily take like a full minute, which would be 10 rounds of combat, which, yeah, much, much, much simplified here. But again, uh, implementation and homebrew stuff, I'll get into at the end. I want to go through the official versions first before I mix anything up. So next up is the suspended cauldron, 19 AC, 20 hit points. A cauldron is an iron pot suspended, so it can be tipped easily, spilling its contents. Once emptied, a cauldron must be refilled, and its contents must usually be reheated before it can be used again. It takes three actions to fill a cauldron, and one action to tip it. Cauldrons can be filled with other liquids, such as acid or green slime, with different effects. But what's actually listed here, though, is boiling oil. The cauldron pours boiling oil onto a 10-foot square area directly below it. Any creature in the area must make a DC 15 dexterity saving throw, taking 3d6 fire damage on a failed saving throw, or half as much damage on a successful one. That one's actually pretty cool. That one I do like. Does that make sense? It is just a small area of effect and something that historically has been used during castle sieges. So the suspended cauldron, neat. But the fact that you could put acid or a slime, also just pretty cool. Slightly disappointed that they don't give any stats for it, though. So next up, the mangonel. So now is where we're getting into like the catapult 
uh, beginning. There's a few different types of catapults listed, so Manganel is just the first one. 15 AC, 100 hit points. Uh, Manganel is a type of catapult that hurls heavy projectiles in a high arc. This payload can hit targets behind cover. Before the Manganel can be fired, it must be loaded and aimed. It takes two actions to load the weapon, two actions to aim it, and one action to fire it. So five actions to fire this thing. Uh, a manganel typically hurls a heavy stone, although it can hurl other kinds of projectiles with different effects. So again, though, it lists the stone's damage, but does not actually talk about what other things can be thrown. But looking historically, that could be stuff like, you know, bacteria-ridden corpses. That could be things like waste, just things trying to spread the disease. So I can understand why D&D wouldn't want to talk about that, but anyone who reads about historical sieges would immediately know what they're talking about. Anyway, a Manganel Stone, plus five to hit, so a little bit lower than the previously mentioned stuff. But anyway, range though, 200 slash 800. So a little bit longer range than even a longbow. But again, the upside of the Manganel as well being that it can hit behind cover because it's a high arc. But this does actually have a trade-off downside, which is that a Manganel cannot hit a target within 60 feet of it. So because it is a catapult, it just cannot hit things that are close, which makes sense. Uh, and then on a hit, that does 5d10 bludgeoning damage. Next up, we have the Ram. 15 AC, 100 hit points. Ram consists of a movable gallery equipped with a heavy log suspended from two uh, roof beams by chain. The log is shod in iron and used to batter through doors and barricades. It takes a minimum of four medium creatures to operate a ram. Because of the gallery roof, these operators have total cover against attacks from above. So there's actually quite a lot mentioned there. So there is a roof that has a giant log hanging from below it by chains. And then it takes four people to just swing this log back and forth. So this is an enormous log if it takes four people just to swing a thing that is suspended by chains. So that's actually pretty cool. And again, because it has the roof total cover, meaning that they just cannot be targeted against creatures above them. So that is actually another pretty neat one as is. And then the ram is a plus eight to hit. Five foot reach. Again, it's a ram. That checks out. Uh, it, you can only target one object, which is actually an interesting just detail of phrasing, which is you cannot attack a person with a ram because it's just too slow and they would get out of the way, which again, makes sense. It's a ram. Uh, what is kind of odd, the damage on that one is also kind of low. It is just a flat 3d10 bludgeoning damage. Next up, the Siege Tower, a gargantuan object, 15 AC, 200 hit points. A Siege Tower is a mobile wooden structure with a beam frame and slats in its walls. Large wooden wheels or rollers allow the tower to be pushed or pulled by soldiers or beasts of burden. Medium or smaller creatures can use the siege tower to reach the top of walls up to 40 feet high. A creature in the tower has total cover from attacks outside the tower. So this is another thing that has been used historically and is fucking awesome. I highly suggest you all just Google to just see what a siege tower looks like because... It's just one of those historical things like that is brilliant. You just make a giant wood thing that is mobile so that you just have your troops behind the thing and then it gets hit with all the arrows and rocks or what have you. 
and your soldiers don't. It's such a simple thing that is just brilliant and really cool and has been used very effectively historically. Plus the fact that it will usually have ladders on the ins inside of it, which will help protect from just a lot of the you know weapons fired against you. But like it mentioned, it is, this thing is 40 feet high. So using that can very easily get you just on top of a short castle wall. And it's just a neat, effective thing. And then last up, we have the trebuchet. Just another classic type of catapult. A huge object, 15 AC, 150 hit points. Trebuchet is a powerful catapult that throws its payload in a high arc so it can hit targets behind cover. Before the trebuchet can be fired, it must be loaded and aimed. It takes two actions to load, two actions to aim, and one action to fire. So yet again, five actions total for this thing. Uh, trebuchet typically hurls a heavy stone, however, can launch other kinds of projectiles, such as barrels of oil or sewage, which with different effects. So here they actually list some of the other stuff that can be fired, but again, don't have stats for it. But uh, trebuchet stone, ranged weapon attack, plus five to hit, range 300 slash 1200, can't attack targets within 60 feet. One target, 8d10 bludgeoning damage. So... That's it. That is the full extent of rules as written in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And as far as I'm aware, in any book since, there has not been any official new content that actually has additional siege weapons. Nathan, before I do just go off on my rant, uh, do you notice any glaring issues or just what are the things that are good about it as is also? Personally, I think that <laughs> the... Majority of these um, weapons and such are pretty cool in general, but like for a couple of them, I feel like some of the numbers aren't exactly the most um, accurate to what they should be. Correct. The numbers, like the actual ideas behind them make sense. Multiple actions to use the things effectively totally makes sense. I mean, to be honest, an argument could be made that it should take more time and then it just does more damage. But for the sake of game, I do kind of understand the logic that they're going for, but I myself just don't disagree with it. But my biggest problem with them is just the fact that there is no influence from the skill of the character that uses it. If you have a group of three level one commoners, or just classless commoners, I should say, really, compared to three level 20 PCs. It is the exact same plus six to hit, same range, same 3d10 piercing damage on a ballista. And I think that that's lame, because weapons do better when a character is proficient, or is skilled in its use, or just has a dexterity score. Just having a game, D&D in particular, is a game that your stats matter in terms of how good you are at everything. And this is a thing where your stats don't matter, and that pisses me off. So besides that fact, another detail that just is of interest to me is the fact that there's absolutely zero magic items listed at all for this. And yes, obviously, there are a lot of magic items that just don't exist in 5th edition from previous editions. There's a lot of things that just don't have a magic version, but castles are a big part of D&D, &D, and sieges are something that a lot of people 
have at some point or another. Like massive wars are a thing that happen in D&D sometimes. So to not have any mention, even just to mention that, yes, you know, magic can be applied, but uh, the difficulty in such a large enchantment increases the rarity by one. Something, just some mention that it would be possible would be at least improvement. But for them to not mention magic in a Dungeons and Dragons category is hey, just magic ain't missing real. out. Magic ain't real. <laughs> but in D and D, exactly. That's the joke. Yes, <laughs> <sighs> I'm passionate about this one. I'm sorry. Just a moment. <sighs> All right. Anyway, but honestly, the magic thing. Okay, fine. We can homebrew that, and we absolutely will get to that part in a moment. But the lack of stats, the lack of player skills able to influence their use of the things, that is what gets me. I, I Again, I fully understand that the intent is just to have them be available, but simple to run for a DM. But that's dumb. Stats should matter. So it would make more sense to just treat any siege weapon just, okay, either A, is siege weaponry its own category of proficiency in which case like you are not going to be proficient with it unless you either get proficiency from like a background of some kind if you invent like a siege engineer background which would honestly be pretty cool i would say uh or if you were to just say okay it's something that your character could train on over some amount of downtime to learn to be able to use it because maybe it just like came up once and the player just really wanted to be better at it at some point in the future then that also would be good and training is a thing that exists in the books but is something that also isn't done super great that will probably be another episode of its own at some point in the future but i would just house rule that okay it's a ranged weapon attack, so it should be dexterity based. So if you have a character then who is, you know, let's just go with the usual 16 dexterity or so, then that would give them a plus three. And then are they proficient or not, just depending on what you and the DM house rule. Uh, oh, sorry. Other angle to that that I forgot about. Please pardon me. You can argue that a ballista is just a huge crossbow because it is. A crossbow, a heavy crossbow in particular, is 1d10, and yeah, so a ballista is 3d10, which means that it, for all intents and purposes, mechanically speaking, it is two damage dice up, which as we talked about in Oversized Weapons, does actually line up that a ballista just is a huge creature's heavy crossbow. So that also would open up some fun potential i would say just for world building so if you have a giant who just has a heavy crossbow then you could use the ballista stat block and then if they drop you know their crossbow then that would mean that there's basically a ballista on the field and maybe the party could try to just like drag it around to try to just aim it in the direction of something far away to try to shoot at and or the other way around if a giant is trying to attack a human castle for some reason, then the idea that they could just grab the ballista, rip it off of its you know hinge or whatever, and then use it as a heavy crossbow is a fucking awesome image to me, and I want to see that kind of stuff happen. So treating siege weapons, at least the ones that do kind of line up that way, as you know increased sized weapons is an interesting way to do it. 
because another detail that is missing from the rules as written is costs. There are none in any book of how much a siege weapon costs, which again is just an oversight because I've had multiple campaigns of different people where if they interact with siege equipment, want to know just, okay, so if I have a ship, how much to get an extra ballista? Like, separate campaigns, I've had this question asked of me, and I've just ended up having to homebrew my own rules. So the closest way would be to use barding. Are you aware of what barding is? Uh, barding is basically like armor for animals, I think. Yeah, exactly Pretty correct. Much. So if you want to just, you know, get... a Let's just stick with the ballista because it is the easiest one-to-one -one with all of this. So if you want to have a huge size crossbow, it's basically, okay, how much would it cost, you know, to get a giant crossbow made, or a huge crossbow rather, made for a giant? So the rules for barding says that you can make armor for larger creatures that is four times the cost of the normal version of the item. So if you were to just use that and then the heavy crossbow, Heavy crossbow is normally 50 gold. So with this, that would mean 200 gold, so four times 50, would be the cost of a ballista. And to me, at least, that's actually pretty reasonable because a party will not be able to lug one of these things around. So it's not like you really have to worry about 310 damage being, you know, some huge boost. It still takes three actions to use the damn thing. So if people want to have a ballista, 200 gold is kind of reasonable. So just because, speaking of barding, when I was doing this research, I stumbled across something that's kind of fun. What would you think would cost more, a ballista or an elephant? Uh, elephant? So the reason I'm asking elephant in particular is that the player's handbook actually lists quite a number of animals in the mounts category. An elephant, it was actually kind of a trick question. An elephant is 200 gold in the player's handbook. So if you logically were to think that 200 gold is too cheap for, or sorry, is too, yeah, is too cheap for a ballista, if you think that, you know, a powerful weapon should cost a lot, you have to also remember the value of gold. I went on the entire episode in gold talking about what gold ought to be thought of as, and it comes up here yet again. A gold piece is not one US dollar of buying power. If you think in your brain, as a gold piece, as a hundred dollars, you are closer to the actual buying power of what it gives you in pretty much every respect. So in that case, that would mean then that an elephant, as well as potentially a ballista then, would cost around $20,000. And that actually seems kind of reasonable in my brain. So if you just treat that one gold as a hundred dollars, then yeah, that helps. So ballista, 200 gold. Cannon is where things get kind of interesting. So it does mention that it can be gunpowder or an arcane kind of propulsion. So for the sake of argument, I'm just going to stick with thinking of it as a magical device because it's easier that way. So, okay, so a cannon then would be a magic item. So if it is a magic item that has the longest range of any item anywhere in any of the books, 600 slash 2400 feet. So with that kind of enormous range, it would make sense for it to be a little bit pricier because also the fact that it is at 8d10 bludgeoning damage as well. So having that be counted as a rare magic item 
for the arcane propulsion that it is just, you know, uh, you know, Tinkerer has a earth elemental bound into this tube that then conjures up a stone cannonball that is fired by this arcane accelerator, whatever you want to actually call the magical version of it. Like there are ways like by using rules similar to some of the fancy magic items in Eberron, especially has a lot of stuff like that as is. So you can just kind of use Eberron as a kind of guide on how you'd want to do something like that. And then just treat it, like I said, as a rare magic item. So a rare magic item then is somewhere between uh, 501 to 5,000 gold. So even at the lower range of that, if you just think, okay, you know, a thousand gold would be something that maybe has charges and can just fire off, you know, X amount of cannonballs a day. Or, you know, you might have the more expensive version that just fires maybe even just to change the damage if you wanted to not have charges and just be able to do the thing. So it is always up to a DM to decide how powerful do you want things to be. But speaking of power, here's where I want to go off on yet another tangent. These siege weapons are too weak. Historically, a ballista has been known to pin multiple people with the same bolt to a tree. I may be wrong, but I vaguely remember even hearing mention at once five people were skewered by the same ballista bolt to a tree. So that is not something that is really doable by D&D rules as written. So there is, however, in our in my good friend, the optional rules chapter of the Dungeon Master's Guide, mention of the effect cleave, which is for all intents and purposes, if you reduce something to zero hit points, the damage is able to keep going to the next thing in line. And that is something that I feel should be applied to all siege weapons. And then you can have the effect where, you know, if there is a cannon that fires just down the line of advancing troops, then one cannonball can kill, you know, depending on how powerful the people charging are, five people, ten people just in a line of just this bouncing cannonball. If you've ever seen the movie The Patriot, you can see how massively dangerous a cannon has been. Like even, you know, before you get into any kind of modern weapons, just historical cannons are horrifyingly dangerous and effective weapons. Uh, Actually, also speaking of Patriot, injuries. I've mentioned a few times in the past that injuries by rules as written aren't really a thing in D&D. But there are, again, some optional rules that bring them up. And siege weapons, I feel, are a fantastic area of where that can come into effect. So if you have a character who gets, you know, hit by a freaking cannonball, it makes sense that there's a very, very high chance that such a character might, you know, lose an arm, lose a leg, because that should happen a lot when siege weapons have been used historically. That would also give that perfect in-game explanation of like, okay, why do so many pirates have peg legs and hook arms? Because ballistas and shit are used on ships a lot. So by having siege weapons there, two plus two equals four, it just, it lines up storyline wise, it lines up mechanically, it lines up so many just perfect little ducklings in a row that I just am irked that more thought wasn't put into this system. So now I'm going to actually go on probably my last rant because I've already gone on quite a number for this subject, the damage. 
the damage is too low. Again, siege weapons historically do terrible things to people that they hit. Player characters in Dungeons and Dragons are superhuman by every metric, but there are things that player characters should be afraid of. The fact that a ballista does 3d10 piercing damage means that it will do from up to 30 down to 3. 3 to 30 damage is completely ignorable for any character that's like 4th level and up. And that's not okay with me. Siege weapons should be something to be feared. They should be the powerful thing because it does take multiple actions to do not to mention the cost and effort to just get it to the right place siege weapons should be dangerous they should be feared so i've actually done a lot of homebrew for my own world just of siege weapons in general so using injuries doing like massive damage potentially doing you know cleave type effects for the various siege weapons having you know more magical versions as well but the damage is, I would argue, one of the most important things to be altered because that a glancing blow from a fucking ballista should not do three damage. That is dumb. So whether so obviously any DM is able to homebrew this however they want to. But the way that I chose to do it, a ballista in my world does 1d6 times 10. So a normal ballista then is going to be somewhere between 10 to 60 damage, because 10 damage will kill a commoner. But that is a glancing blow to an adventurer, but still not something to just shrug off. So once you just have some double-digit number, that is still something to a player character. So 1d6 times 10 for the ballista. But one other important detail, the Dungeon Master's Guide here only lists the ballista. But historically speaking, you had like the ballista, you had the scorpion. There's multiple sizes of this type of object that can fire, you know, larger bolts for more damage. So to have like a light ballista, ballista, heavy ballista is something that I do highly, highly recommend. Uh, again, your worlds may vary. I have very strong, very strong feelings on this subject, but that does not mean that you ever have to take anything that I say as gospel, but I do highly recommend just thinking more on the subject. And then also, if you think about magic weapons in terms of siege weapons. So if you have like a ballista plus one, okay, it gives you plus one to the attack roll, which is nice. Uh, also, just use dexterity modifiers, as I mentioned before, is something that you just should do, because if you can aim the thing better, you should be able to aim the thing better. But if you, again, though, if you have the magic weapon, then you could change that to 1d6 plus 1 times 10, which would then mean that it does a minimum of 20 damage. So a magic ballista would even a plus 1, which would definitely be a thing for any kind of like significant city or just castle that has any significant amount of wealth should have at least one of these somewhere. 20 damage is really nothing to shrug at because that would potentially kill a guard in one shot relatively easily. That could kill bandits relatively. Like, even if you go a step above just the commoner, that is dangerous. And that's the biggest point that I want to just get across with all of this. Siege weapons are a historically incredibly effective, useful weapon that has been used for literally hundreds up to a thousand years i don't actually know the first historical origin that's something for me to google later anyway 
Siege weapons are useful. They are terrifyingly effective. They have always been terrifyingly effective. In your D&D world, you should make them terrifyingly effective. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. So support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tier stars, those a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, where we will chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Podcast. And now send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Actually, on second thought, one extra detail that I do just want to add in quickly here at the end. One neat thing. In Eberron, it is mentioned offhand that there does exist magical artillery in the world of Eberron. And by ridiculous life coincidences, Keith Baker, the gentleman who created Eberron, worked on pretty much every Eberron product that has ever existed since, published a third-party book called Exploring Eberron two days before the time of this recording. And in that, they finally, after years of only being mentioned it, actually give statistics to some magical artillery. So I do highly suggest checking that out because it is a very much missing thing that finally, while not official official, was made by the creator of Eberron. So close enough. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.